You guys were the lucky ones. So this morning, the early service came in just as a, a deluge came down. Man, it was really fun. It was like a 40 high school students took off for camp, too, at the same time. Uh, I can imagine what it's going to smell like in advance, driving to Miracle Camp, you know, this morning. <laughs> Wet, sweaty kids. Okay. Uh, real exciting for those, those volunteers and everybody that went up there with them. Okay. I, don't, I just thought I'd share that with you this morning, just in case. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to the book of Daniel uh, in the middle of the Bible, kind of in the middle, just a little bit past the middle of the Bible, uh, the book of Daniel. We've been looking at Daniel this summer, and Daniel is an interesting book because, as I shared with you, you guys, uh, over the summer, if you've been here, if you've not been here, uh, you probably know the book of Daniel because of some children's stories, that I call them children's stories, that are in there that we learn in Sunday school, Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery in the uh, in the uh, uh, fiery furnace. You know things, things like that. Those stories, but the book of Daniel is much more than children's stories. It's really a story of of this, and that is that God is in control. Uh, God is in control of of the world and of our lives. And uh, as we've been studying through the chapters each week, uh, we've encountered several characters. Daniel, of course, being the primary character. But also his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But uh, the last few weeks, uh, one of the primary characters has been the king of this time, is King, king Nebuchadnezzar, or Nebi for short. Uh, it's kind of a long name to say Nebuchadnezzar. I, I, don't, I would hate to have been in kindergarten and learned to spell that name. But, uh, but we have uh, those, those guys as well. And today we kind of come to chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar's still here. He's still the king. As we get close to the next chapter, we'll see some new, some new characters come along. Because this, uh, the book of Daniel is over a long period of time. It's not just a really short period of time. Because between chapters 1 and chapter, chapter 2 and chapter 3, there was probably about 20 years and probably another 20 years have passed into chapter 4. And when we get there, uh, this, this kingdom, the Babylonian kingdom, which is at the time in the world was the greatest kingdom in the world, at the time had grown and was at probably the peak we see in chapter 4. And that's where we are now. Nebuchadnezzar, over the last couple of weeks, if you've been here, uh, uh, the thing is, is that we've talked about uh, how Nebuchadnezzar seemed to, at times, particularly in chapters 2 and 3, to have some type of, I don't know what it is, strange relationship with God. Because at times he would seem like he would be praising God, and other times he seemed like he would just be kind of like falling off a cliff and, and, and just, you know, just turning his way away from everything because he was this kind of schizophrenic type king. And, and then when we come to chapter and so he's had this hit and miss relationship with God. I call it kind of a Sunday morning relationship with God. You know, you come to church, praise God, go home, and God doesn't exist the rest of the week. Uh, and I hope that's not you, but, uh, but that's kind of where Nebuchadnezzar was. But today we begin, the first three verses of chapter 3 is interesting because it introduces to a new attitude, in a sense, that Daniel had. And actually it kind of sets up, the, it's kind of a preface to the whole chapter and really, as we read this, what's going to happen in the rest of the chapter happens really before verses 1 through 3. This is after the fact he writes this. So he writes, this is what happens now after all the stuff happens in chapter 4. And so this got to give you an idea. But the other thing that's strange in chapter 4 is this. It's who it's written by. So far, the book of Daniel has been written by Daniel. But we come to chapter 4, and it seems to have been written, at least a large portion of it, written by King Nebuchadnezzar himself. And it actually says that in places, I, Nebuchadnezzar, say this. And so we don't know if it's, a, you know, somebody's writing it down or Nebuchadnezzar has written his own uh, biography or something like that. So we'll just kind of see here. So when we begin this, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking in verses 1 through 3. That's very important to understand. Because this king who's had pit, miss, relationship with God, you know, praises God when 
Uh, Daniel uh, walks out of the fiery furnace, but before that he wants to kill everybody. You know, this kind of crazy king. This is what he says in verses 1 through 3. To the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I don't know about you, if I read that, I, I, that sounds like a guy who's committed to God. He's got a deep and abiding commitment. To, I mean, he's, he's, he's saying God is, he's the one and the only. Now, we have not seen this consistently throughout here. I, I, and this is really, in a sense, like I said, what we're going to read the rest of the chapter uh, will actually be prior to this, this pronouncement that he makes, okay? Uh, so when he said, read, read this, he said, this is where I've come to, but now let me tell you how I got there. That's kind of what he's saying. And it's interesting because all of us, hopefully, you know, if you've come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and said yes to him, there was probably a place in your life you can look back on, a, seri- a season of life or, or, or a, series, a series of events that led you up to a place where you could say, in a sense, maybe not the same words, not as flowery as uh, Nebuchadnezzar says here, but the same thing, that God is really the real God and, and, I, and I trust him with all, everything. And you can think back to that. I can think back to that when I was 14 and that happened to me. But the reality is, it seems that Nebuchadnezzar, when we start chapter 4, has come to that place. Okay, that's important. But what got, gets him there? What takes this prideful, arrogant king and gets him to the place where he says that God is his dominion endures from generation to generation? He's better than anything. Well, let's, let's read a little bit. Now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the first next few verses. Then we're going to look at a couple of verses and then kind of wrap up at the end. And then I'm going to apply it to wh- where we are today. Um, the next few verses in verses 4 through 18, basically, once again, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. And you can read this yourself. And he has a dream that's terrifying, and it's so terrifying that he calls once again, and you kind of figure this out, why did he call these advisors again, these spiritual advisors who really know nothing uh, again, but he calls them and he says, tell me what the dream is. And this time he does tell them what the dream is, at least, unlike chapter 2. And, and if you don't understand what that is, read chapter 2. And the deal is, is that he tells them what his dream is, it's terrifying, but he, they can't answer the dream. And so he calls on, finally, his main man, Daniel. And he said, Daniel, you, you're, the, you're the wisest man in the kingdom. Come and tell me what this dream is. And so he tells, and you can read that the dream is, the dream is about this big tree. And it's this tree is so huge that, that it feels almost, almost the biggest tree you can think of, you know. And it just fills the sky almost. And the birds of the air, it says, comes down and nest in it. And, then the, and the beasts of the field come and, 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 and stay underneath it. It's kind of like this really warm, uh, you know, welcoming place. And it's powerful. It's huge. And it reaches to the sky. And then he says... It's kind of weird, too. The, the schiz- dreams are schizophrenic anyway, right? I mean, I mean, how do you sit down and outline your dreams, you know, before you have them? And you, it's kind of like just a bunch of stuff that happens, and then you put it together, and you, oh, that was a dream. Well, it starts off about it, this tree, and then it says, an uh, angel came down, or a uh, being from heaven came down, and, and says, cut down the tree, trim its branches, everything. And what happens is, is a tree is cut down, and what happens is, at that point, it says in the story, the dream in a dream, uh, that it's all that's left is a stump, and around the stump they put a band, and I guess that means it's trying to preserve the stump, something that's left of the tree, not much. And so at that point, it goes from a it to a him, 
read it, it's kind of weird. And, and there's no transition. It's like it about the tree, and then all of a sudden there's a hymn in there. Him. He. Uh, he says, he will go out and he will wander around. He, basically, it says this. This guy, whoever him is, in the story, we don't know yet. He goes out and he, and, and he becomes kind of a wild man. He kind of loses his mind. And for seven years, it says, in there, seven years he wanders around. And, and he's lost, and he, and he looks like his hair becomes so long that it looks like feathers, is what it says. And his nails are so long that they look like claws. And that's, that's the way it describes it in here. It's just a really strange dream. But finally, the thing comes around, and the, and the person regains their senses, and things get better. Well, Daniel comes, and he hears the dream, he interprets the dream. But we read in verse 19, this is what we read after this happens. Then Daniel is also called Belteshazzar. That's his Babylonian. Daniel's his Hebrew name. Belteshazzar is his Babylonian name. Was greatly perplexed for a time. He couldn't figure it out. And his thoughts terrified him. He kind of started knowing what the dream was about and what he thought about and what he understood didn't, didn't strike him as good. So the king said to him, King Nebuchadnezzar says to him, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Obviously, this, these guys had a good enough relationship over all these years that he kind of saw. I mean, you know, when you're around a good friend or your spouse, hopefully, not sure you could read their minds, okay? I've been married, you know, a few years. And the thing is, is that my, my wife and I cannot still read each other's minds. At least I can't read hers. She might be able to read mine. I don't know. Uh, but the reality is they can't do it. But they, they, they knew each other so well that they saw, he, and Nebuchadnezzar saw that there was something going on, some, some kind of a angst, some kind of a problem going on as, 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 as Daniel was trying to think through this dream and understand its meaning. So Belteshazzar says, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. And then Belteshazzar, or Daniel, answered, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. He's going like, I know what this means, and it's not good for you. But I don't want to tell you because you're my friend. I respect you. Now that's weird because as you look at Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was a guy who had all this power, but he was, as we've looked already, he was, he was up and down and all over the place. He wasn't a guy normally to be your best buddy because you didn't know what he was going to do one minute. And he had the power to do whatever he wanted to do. But Daniel had built a relationship with him over these years. And he, and he was a, a little bit having some problems telling him what the dream was. And so, anyway, he finally tells him what the dream is in the, next, in the next few verses. The dream is about you, Nebuchadnezzar. You're the tree. Um, you're, you know, your kingdom is great. It's one of the greatest kingdoms. It's the greatest kingdom in the world at the time. And so what it is is that this represents you. But when it's cut down, it means your kingdom will not be forever. And when it's not forever, there's just a stump left. There's just it's like there's nothing much left. And then there's going to be this period of time when you, Nebuchadnezzar, are going to become like a wild man, lose your mind, wander around in the wilderness or wherever it is for seven years. I mean, you won't bathe, you won't shave, you won't do anything. You just kind of look like a wild animal. And for seven years, you'll wander around. And finally, you'll, you'll realize that God is who he says he is. And you look up to the skies and, and, and you will... And you will return to sanity once again. And for some strange thing in Scripture, it says that he'll actually, his kingdom will come back as well. I don't know how that happens after all this period of time. But that's what we read. And it says in verse, and, and it tell, this is where it says it in verses 29 and 30, it says this, 12 months later, after the dream was interpreted, 
As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence, but my mighty power, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? A lot of my's in there, right? See, this is, this is a year after this because he had the dream. And, and, and Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of the dream, if you read back there, I've interpreted the dream. He said, you know, if you will probably just, maybe God won't do all the stuff that he's gonna, this dream tells me he's going to do if you'll just repent. That's what it says. But for some reason, after the episode of the fiery furnace, interpretation of dreams, and all the things that's gone on so far, he still hasn't figured out that God is who he says he is. And so what does he do? For a year, God gives him a year, kind of a year grace period. And at the end of that year, it says 12 months later, he goes out on, on top of the roof. Once again, he looks out at all the stuff. And at the time, this was the greatest city in the world. At that time in the world, Babylon was considered in the ancient world one of the great cities of the world, probably the greatest city in the world. And two of the, ancient, two of the seven ancient wonders of the world were in Babylon. The hanging gardens of Babylon that, that Nebuchadnezzar had built for his, uh, had, had, had built, he didn't build them, had built for his wife. I don't know what they look like, but they, it was something that probably, if you guys were going on vacation, was anywhere near there, that'd be a place you'd hang out. It was that incredible. And then the walls of the city of Babylon were another wonder of the world at that time because of their immense size. There were 15 kilometers long around the wall, over 300 feet tall, 85 feet wide, Big walls. Y'all engineering dudes in here this morning can figure all that out about how much stuff it takes, to, how long it takes to build it. I don't know how that's, but they say it was big enough to ride chariots across the top and actually turn a four-horse chariot around on the top of the wall. That's how big these things were. So that's a pretty impressive place. So he's sitting here, and Nebuchadnezzar is the king of all this, and he's looking out over all of this, knowing the dream says, your kingdom will fall if you don't acknowledge me as Lord, as the God of God, a king of kings. And all he can say at this point is this. Hey, look at all of what I have done. It's all about me. Verse 33. Immediately, no grace period this time. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Man, that's one strange looking dude. I mean, it really is. And then, then it says this, verse four, uh, 34, at the end of that time, and this is where we know, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then, after all this, seven years of wandering around, looking like a wild creature, doing everything, then I praised the Most High, I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion, His kingdom endures from generation to generation, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And at the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor was returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now, the question I had when I read that was this. What people in their right mind were advisors? And your king's wandering around like a wild animal for seven years, and all of a sudden, he, everything looks fine, and you just accept him back. Oh, everything's good, king. Let's high five. Let's go on. I mean, think about that for a minute. I mean, I think I'd have given him a little period of, is this guy really back? He's got all his marbles back to, you know? 
What's the deal? But it says that that's what happened. Obviously, this is another act of God. This doesn't happen like that. You just don't become insane and all everything becomes just perfect. But that's basically what it says. When he said, I looked to God and I realized this who he was, everything was restored. Verse 37, finalized. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And then he concludes it with this. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Who's he talking about? Himself. So even the king who has power over everything, God can humble him if God wants to humble him. Now, when I read that, I was thinking there's so much. I mean, I, could, I got like a whole sermon series out of, that one, out of that one passage of Scripture. So many things it says there. But I just want to focus on one thing. The last part. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Man, when I look around the world today, humility is not something that's really advertised too much. I mean, we, we don't. I look around uh, recently. Uh, let, let's just give you an example. Uh, because... We, for some reason, you know, people that kind of boastful and proud people sometimes, there's the ones we don't recognize so much. How many of you consider yourself, know something about the NBA, the National Basketball Association? Anybody here? Last service, it was four people. You know, okay. Okay, let's do a little survey here. How many of you, over the last 20 years, how many of you would consider, uh, okay, who would you consider the, probably the most the most uh, successful franchise, but probably the player in that franchise who's, did, who's done the best job who's had the most success over the last 20 years would it, would it be Kobe Bryant I mean Kobe Bryant just finished a 20-year career and he's had this like big fanfare everywhere he went this last year you know everybody's like oh yeah Kobe oh. would it be LeBron James last service man some kid in here will freak out when I said LeBron James oh. <laughs> really sitting right over there I didn't expect that you know LeBron you know cool do you know who the player by statistics and I knew this, but I didn't know it was this good by statistics. A player that just retired last week had the greatest statistics in any 20-year stretch in NBA history. His name is Tim Duncan. Tim who? San Antonio Spurs. Over the last 19, he's only 19 years. Okay, this is 19, not 20. Over the last 19 years, his team has never had a losing record, never missed the playoffs, and had a, a 710, per, uh, a 710 winning percentage. They won 71% of their games over 19 years. That's the greatest in the history of the NBA. It's also better than any franchise in any sport in American professional athletics over the last 20 years. It's better than anybody in Major League Baseball, in the NHL, in the NFL. Nobody had a, had a record like that. Now, yes, there was teammates. I mean, yeah, he had Manu Ginobili, and he has Tony Parker on the same team, and he's had the same coach, Greg Popovich, for, for all 19 years, which is pretty impressive. It's also the smallest franchise in all of NBA. I know my, I know my NBA stuff, guys. Okay? Also, I study this, okay? The thing is, is that how many of us know, I mean, how many of us go around? Now, we know LeBron James. Look at me. I mean, he's a great player, yeah. And we know Kobe. I mean, he had the great, the big, you know, exit tour. But you know how, you know how Tim Duncan retired last week? He went into the offices and he says, I retire. Bye. See you. That was it. 
No, no, no news conference. Nothing. And, but you know what? You know what? Since then, he's not said anything else. Everybody else that knew him said something for him because they knew how good a player he was. They knew that he was incredible because he has. See, he never drew attention to himself. Never. Two words. Uh, well, one, he was also known. It's interesting. One of his nicknames that they gave him uh, on his team was he was called the Big Fundamental. He's a big dude, six, six, eleven, seven foot, something like that. Came out of Wake Forest. And, and boy, you know, he, he's always just plays the basic ball. He's not flashy. He's none of that. He just wins and wins and wins. Five NBA championships. You're going like, I don't care about basketball. Well, just, just tell. The thing, the reality is this. I mean, how many even know about basketball would think of Tim Duncan as probably the greatest player over the last 20 years? Because he never drew attention to himself. He would be described more as a very humble person. Person that exhibited. Now, I'm not saying he's perfect in any way. He's had his ups and downs. But the reality is his attitude towards, and his teammates would say he's the greatest teammate in the history of basketball. Because he always thought of them first. He always deflected the glory to them. That's why we don't know much about the guy. Because humility is something that so often in our, in our world today, uh, we just don't seldom trod that path. It's not that it's forgotten, it's disdained. Um, it's because of this, our modern day definitions of humility do not match up with what biblical humility is. Our modern day definition of humility tend to equate the word with low self-esteem and a soft and pliable disposition, a lack of ambition, a conscious effort to minimize or downplay all of our accomplishments. But if you look at Scripture and if you look at the life of Daniel, these are not the marks of biblical humility. So let me share with you some marks of biblical humility today that comes out of this. And let me tell you, if you want to read this more and get more info info about this, we're getting ready to launch a, a new resource for all you guys. Everybody here gives us the email address that wants to have this. Uh, there's a new th- there's not a new thing. It's been around for about four or five years. It's called Right Now Media. And Right Now Media is like the Netflix of Christian TV, literally. Uh, it's got, you have access to 14, right now, 14,000 high volume, high good, really good Christian, Christian videos that deal with every topic in the world, small group leaders, discipleship, children's, there's two to 3,000 children's videos. There's stuff for everything, okay? And uh, we're going to be sending you out a link in a week or two about that, and you'll have access. But what I'm telling you about that is that this past week as I was exploring it, I came across a resource. And I've been studying for several weeks now, Daniel, and then came across a resource that's in that, and I'll send you a link to it as well. Uh, There's a book by a guy named Larry Osborne, who's pastor of North Coast Church. I don't know exactly where it is. I guess it's on the North Coast somewhere. And... um, and his name, Larry Osborne, he wrote a book called Thriving in Babylon. Thriving in Babylon. Great book. I've read most of it this week already. But in that video, on the Right Now Media, there is the, the five-week video series. So if it's small group leaders, you want to start off the new year with something to kind of follow some of what we're just doing, here's a great place to start. Just a little encouragement. Uh, five-week video series that would be great to start off studying the book of Daniel. But topically, not so much how we've done it as well. Look at it in a different way. But in reading the book, one of the things Larry Osborne talks about is this whole thing in talking about chapter 4, this whole thing about what is, what, why we misuse or why we don't have humility in the way or promote humility the way that the Bible promotes it. And so he gives, gives th- uh, three or four different things that we need to understand that what biblical humility, humility is not and what it is. So let me share with you those things. This is out of Larry Osborne's book. Number one, biblical humility is not, 
is not synonymous with low self-esteem. It has nothing to do with that. You know, the Bible actually commands us to have an accurate assessment of our strengths and weaknesses. We're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And we're not to think more poorly of ourselves than we ought to. Instead, we ought, we're to gauge, the Bible says, we're to gauge our gifts, our abilities, our strengths, and our weaknesses with sound and sober judgment. That's what the Bible says. Now, Jesus was humble, right? Would you consider Jesus humble? Yeah. But he was also, he had a rather high opinion of himself. Because what did he say he was? God. I mean, how many of you get away with that if you thought, you think, oh, yeah, this person's crazy, think they're God? No. But he was still humble. He, didn't, he knew who he was. There's no way to equate that with low self-esteem. Daniel and his friends, we've already read, we're in the chapter 4 of the series. Chapter 4. Daniel described himself in chapter 1 and his friends. He, he wrote it. If you remember back to chapter 1, four, four weeks ago when we did this, how did Daniel describe he and himself as friends in Daniel chapter 1? I'll, if you don't remember, I'll tell you. Okay? He says this, quote, he says, my, Daniel and his friends are described as young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Will you consider that somebody that had low self-esteem? No. There's no, lack, there's no virtue in lack of, of, of confidence or self-abasement. See, if, if you're handsome and are well-qualified to serve in the king's palace, Jesus expects you to know it, God expects you to know it, to acknowledge it, and do something with it. He gives whatever you have so you can serve him. We're not to put ourselves down because we think that is what humility is all about. I mean, there's nothing to be gained by trying to pretend you're ugly and have a low IQ. It just doesn't work. So number one, Biblical humility is not lack of or low self-esteem. Number two, it's not lack of ambition. Um, humility doesn't e negate ambition. Daniel, was, were Daniel and his friends ambitious? How do we know they were? Every time Daniel had an encounter with God, remember back after the fiery furnace, and he came out and and and. and Nebuchadnezzar praised, praised God for that. What did Daniel ask for? This is a test. Look it up in scriptures. Read it. Read all the first four chapters. He said, will you make my friends advisors in the kingdom? He always, every time, after the, he said, will you make my friends this? Will you do this? He, he promoted, he said, hey, we're just don't, not, you know, he didn't say, oh, no big deal. Just do anything you want. No, he said, hey, you acknowledge that God is doing this through us? Promote us into the kingdom. That's not lack of ambition. That's ambition. There's, it's not that. See, it's the first thing that he asked Nebuchadnezzar to do after he was placed in charge of all of Babylon's wise men was to appoint his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as administrators. It's not lack of ambition. That's not what humility is. It's, the third thing is not this. It's not downplaying our accomplishments. It's not downplaying our accomplishments. That's not what humility is. It doesn't mean we never tell anyone about the successes or accomplishments or that we refuse to take joy in them. Biblical humility 
is willing to be overlooked from time. Though. We, we doesn't say, oh, look at everything I've done and focus on myself all the time. It, but it doesn't negate what we have done. It doesn't insist on public honor or accomplishment. It doesn't trumpet status or accomplishments. But that's not the same as hiding or artificially downplaying our successes. And to prove this, this is easy to prove. <laughs> How do we know about Daniel and all that he did? He wrote a book about himself. And God put it in the Bible. It was all right with God that he did that. Apparently God was good with it and he put it in the Bible. So, I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, this is what happened. And leaving it there. So, if those are not what biblical humility, they're not, none of those things, what is biblical humility? And what does it do with Daniel? Well, it's this. Biblical humility and why it's so important here is this. It's serving others. It's serving others. That's what biblical hu- humility is. At its core, biblical humility is simply serving others by putting their needs and interests above our own. It's treating others the way, same way we treat them as if they were somebody important. Because they are. In God's sight, every person is part of his creation. And we need to treat people that way. Not because they agree with us. Not because they look like us. Not because of anything else, but simply because they're creations of God. Now, I realize it's easy to talk about humbly serving others, but not so easy to do it in real life. Especially when it comes to serving people who'd rather not serve. But that's what biblical humility does. Let me give you an example. There's lots of biblical examples. I'm going to give you a biblical example and a, and a real life, everyday example. In the Old Testament, there's a guy named Abraham. And Abraham had a nephew named Lot. And they had a bunch of stuff. They had lots of, lot. Back then, it was, the stuff was not like you know, money in the bank or anything. It was sheep and cattle and all this kind of stuff. They had huge families. And they came to a place, a place where they were traveling to new land, and they knew they couldn't go together because there was way too, much, too, too many sheep and cattle and stuff to graze in one location. So Abraham said, hey, Lot, I said, tell you what, let's split up and go in different directions, and you get to choose first where we're going, where, where you're going. It's where you're going to... So he chose, obviously, the best-looking land to graze his cattle and his sheep and do all the things he was going to do. And and so by doing that, what does that mean he does? He gets the second best piece of land. Now, the end of the story is if we read the story in Scripture, it's real easy to see that Lot's choice ultimately led to his downfall. But that's another story. But the reality is Abraham had, had a humility in his life that meant he looked out for everybody else ahead of himself. See, biblical humility doesn't stop with serving those who don't deserve to be served. They also means even serving our enemies. Let me ask a question. When Jesus washed, in the upper room, when Jesus met with his disciples before he died upon a cross, when he washed the feet of his disciples, which was an act of humility, who did he include? Was there 12 disciples that he washed their feet or 11 disciples he washed their feet? It was 12. There was a guy up there too that he already knew was going to betray him, that was going to turn his back on him and be used by Satan. His name was Judas, but Jesus still humbled himself and served him. That's an example from Jesus himself of how we're to, you know, even if people we don't like are different than us, or maybe they're, they're foes and are religious heretics or whatever, 
he says we're to, we're, we're to be humble, humble ourselves before them. And when we look at Daniel's humility in the scripture passage over the last four weeks, the thing we understand is this, that's the kind of humility Daniel had. He served his captors and his wicked masters. I mean, these, yeah, I mean, I'm glad at chapter four, we finally see Nebuchadnezzar getting it. But prior to this, Nebuchadnezzar was evil. But Daniel still, Daniel and his, and his three, three friends still were humbled themselves before these. He served their captors and wicked, well, wicked masters well, and, and, and loyal, and, and so loyal, and then he kept getting promoted. That's what happened to him. And with every promotion, what happened to Daniel and his friends? They became more influential uh, in the kingdom of Babylon, which eventually we'll see in chapter 4 here led to King Nebuchadnezzar proclaiming Daniel's God as the only true God. And later on we see in Scripture King Darius, another, another king, coming to know God, uh, God as the true God because of the influence of Daniel and his friends. See, this is, this is let's kind of wrap it up. Biblical humility offers respect to everyone. To everyone. It's the real deal. It's a heartfelt, heartfelt deference that comes from the recognition that everyone bears the image of God, no matter how marred that image might be. That's the kind of respect that Daniel and his three friends showed toward everyone that came along. They never copped an attitude toward anybody from the jailers to the wicked king. Uh, they were always respectful. Uh, their attitudes were respectful. Their words, their behavior were radically different from, the, from so often what we see today. I hate to say this. But the reality is sometimes today as Christians, we shoot ourselves in the foot because we sometimes, instead of treating people with respect that are different than us, what we do is we treat them as the enemy. Let me, let me explain something to you. Non-Christians are not the enemy. Non-Christians are not the enemy in whatever shape, form they come in. They're victims of the enemy. Victims need to be rescued, not wiped out. And the thing I, I see about Daniel is this. Daniel had every right to be in opposition to Nebuchadnezzar. His friends had every right to do that. But what did they do? They treated Nebuchadnezzar and then following people and everybody else with respect. They didn't agree with everything they did. They didn't follow everything they did. But they treated them with respect in spite of everything they did. And what did they do? They won influence. I believe that's one of the things today that we in our culture as Christians need to understand. Non-Christians, people of other faiths, people of other belief systems are not our enemy. They're victims of the enemy, and they need to be rescued, not wiped out. The Apostle Paul spelled it out in Scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, exactly how we're to approach people. He says this. He says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, talking about us, the Lord's servants, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Treat people with respect. Now, modern day example. Most of you probably 
are aware that about four years ago, there was a boycott of a restaurant chain called Chick-fil-A. Y'all aware of that? You know why they had a boycott of the restaurant called Chick-fil-A? Because Dan Cathy, who is the president, he actually, he's the, his father, Truett Cathy, is the one who started Chick-fil-A. And his father died a couple, couple years ago. But for the last 10 years, Dan Cathy has been uh, leading this. And a few years ago, about four years ago, I think in 2012, he, uh, he was at a conference and he simply, they were asking him some questions and he simply made this statement. Yeah, I believe in a biblical definition of, of marriage. That's all he said. But because of that, because of that, what happened is some gay and lesbian organizations across the United States, particularly one called Campus Pride, um, started saying, hey, these people are opposed to us and whatever. Never what Dan Cathy said. And, and so that began a, a process. Well, you know, as Christians so often, when somebody opposes us, what do we do? We lash out back at them, whatever. I, I was so impressed with Dan Cathy. Uh, because uh, uh, that next year, after that happened, I came across a story, an article, uh, that was written in a place I normally don't read stuff, the Huffington Post. But it was online, and uh, it's an incredibly liberal newspaper, by the way. Uh, but the thing was, it was who it was written by and what it was about. Because the article, the article was called this, Dan and Me, My Coming Out as a Friend of Dan, Kathy, and Chick-fil-A. And uh, it was written by a guy named Shane Windmeyer, who is the leader of Campus Pride, this gay rights group. And his group is the one that led the charge against, against, this organiz- against Chick-fil-A. Didn't affect Chick-fil-A that much. For some reason, a whole bunch of Christians got together and said, let's go eat at Chick-fil-A twice as much now because, you know, it was, I, I don't believe that's a reason for eating at Chick-fil-A. I just like their food. But, uh, but anyway... But in the article, what was amazing to me was this. How what Dan Cathy did, he instigated, he called, he called Shane Windemeyer and said, can we sit down and talk? I'm not going to try to convince you to stop the, 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 your uh, boycott. I just want to understand more. So over the next year, two years, whatever, they've had conversation after conversation. And the very next year, and this was, this was a pretty big issue because a lot of conservative Christians gave Dan Cathy a big deal because he was doing this. But I think he did what exactly he needed to do. He built a relationship. He never changes his stance. Dan Cathy has never changed his stance on what he believes about the biblical definition of marriage. But he says, I want to know, I want to treat you with respect, I want to get you to know as a person. And the next year at the Chick-fil-A Bowl, which is one of the major college bowl games, which Chick-fil-A sponsors, and they had a big box there, guess who was one of the guests of Dan Cathy? Shane Windemeyer. Now, here was Dan Cathy, conservative Christian, you know, married for years, has, you know, Christian solid, you know, I call it solid Christian evangelical values. And, and Shane Windemeyer, head of a gay rights group. And they were having conversations that were civil. They didn't agree with each other. They both still say, and this, is, this article written by Shane Windemeyer says this, but he says, I respect him now because he was willing to listen. And I don't know if that's going to turn into, a, into something down the road. But the reason that Daniel could have influence with King Nebuchadnezzar 
was because he didn't push away King Nebuchadnezzar. What he did, he said, I respect that you're the king, and I respect that what you're doing, I don't agree with your crazy schemes, but you know, and in time to time, he had some pushback. But because he was that way and he understood this whole thing of humility is carried about other people more than ourselves and, and about building those relationships is more important than anything else, not just being right, then what happened is, is he was able to influence a kingdom. Jesus, what does the Bible say? What else is the Bible? Just, just one, one other verse out of Philippians chapter 2 before we close. What kind of attitude do we need to have? Do we have the attitude, well, you know, don't want to have anything to do with them people, whatever it may be, you know? Democrats, Republicans. I think we just, just, just destroy all political parties and just do something new. But anyway, that's just my, you know. I get so fed up this time of year with that that I don't want to, I go crazy. Somebody's last service said, that's the most political you've ever spent in a service. You're right. I am fed up with politics. I'm going to vote for Captain Obvious for president this year. If you don't know what I mean, you haven't seen that commercial. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> but the deal is this. This is what Jesus says that we should do. Okay. This is Jesus' example. If, if you don't believe that Daniel's the right example, which I believe he is, this is what Jesus, the, Paul says about Jesus. You, who is you? All of you, all of me, you, Christians, must not should, must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Though he was God, he was God. If anybody could go up and go like, look at me, I'm God. He could have said that, right? He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And then the next few verses says, when he appeared in human form, what did he do? He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, what did God do? God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you want to do something incredible with your life, what you need to do is humble yourself. And you need to do it the way the Bible says to, which means that your most important thing in your life is not you. It's no, it's, it, it doesn't mean that you, you say, oh, I'm nothing. No, it says, look at who you are, what God made you to do, use the gifts and the abilities that he has given you, and then what you must do is realize that God has made everybody else too, and that they are more important than you. And if we all did that, think of what the world would be like. You're going like, well, everybody's doing it. Well, don't worry about the rest of the world, just worry about you. The only person you can control is you. Look at the example of Daniel. By him being the kind of person who knew his strengths and his weaknesses, he still had ambition. But he thought of others first. He influenced a whole kingdom for God from the top down. Now, you may not have an influence with the top down here, but you can start from the bottom up, okay? And God wants us to have that kind of thing. Daniel is an incredible book. I would challenge you to reread it and reread it and reread it. There is, like I said, this whole chapter here has got so many things that are good in it. This is just a one. This is just one of them. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. 
You don't have to sit around and worry about pounding your chest and looking like you're cool and having a retirement party everywhere you go. God will do the lifting. Let him do it. And in the meantime, what he'll do is he'll give you influence in ways you've never thought possible. Let's pray.